So I, uh, I joked with the worship team earlier, I just said after Shelby's baptism, we really should just come up and worship and then go home because like there's just, that's the, man, that's, doesn't get any better than hearing this life change story of God's grace and her faith and all that, man, it's just so, so powerful. Praise God, right? I mean, it's just, whoo, praise God. Well, uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake, and I'm a uh, lead pastor here of Midtown Church, and looking forward to our time and the Word together. We're going to start chapter 5 of 1 Peter. We've been in 1 Peter for quite a while now, going back to last fall. We're actually entering into the final stretch uh, this Sunday, and then next Sunday, uh, Jamie will preach, and he'll close out 1 Peter, so we'll wrap it up the series, but uh, looking forward to the passage we're going to be in this morning. Before we get there, though, let me just share a little something about myself. That is that I love, man, I love reading stories and being exposed to people who are uh, just great leaders. Uh, if you like reading about great leaders, I think about George Washington. I think about Abraham Lincoln, thinking a lot about those kind of leaders lately in the presidential race and wishing that they were still around. And, uh, but, you know, but my favorite leader of all time has got to be uh, doc, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm just a huge fan of his. I had a privilege in college to take a a couple of classes on uh, civil rights rhetoric and civil rights uh, movement by a professor named Dr. Rick Rigsby, who was this big old, like, football lineman-sized African-American man who was also a Baptist preacher, a motivational speaker, and a chaplain for the Aggie football team. And he was the prof. He was the, like, if you could get a class with Dr. Rigsby, like, you, you, luck, you, like, you hit the lottery. He was just a, but going to his classes was like going to church. Like, he had just the perfect, like, call and response. And you find yourself in class taking notes and saying amen at the same time. And it was awesome. But he did a lot to talk about. He, he taught me a lot about uh, Dr. King. And one of the stories that he shared that's always stayed with me, and then I read again recently in this book with that I talked about back around Christmas time, Sky Jathani lays out this story as well, that I think from Dr. King's life was probably his greatest act of leadership that he ever did. And it's not the one that gets the most attention. You think about his speeches and, and different things like that. But this, this act just blows me away. See, the story is, is that when he was just 26 years old, it was just two months after Rosa Parks had kind of helped initiate the catalyst for the Montgomery boycott, bus boycott, and they, uh, Dr. King had just moved into town, and they n- named him the president of the boycott committee. It, uh, really kind of against, like he wasn't volunteering for it. They just kind of said, you're, you're our guy, because he was new to town. And so he, he, but he did accept it willingly. And so he started uh, leading the, 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 the boycott. And right away, the threats started pouring in. Threats for his, uh, his life, threats for his wife's life, threats for his infant daughter's life. I mean, just constant. And then one night on uh, January uh, 27th, he got an anonymous call late at night where he was told that if he wasn't out of town within three days, they would, quote, blow out his brains and blow up his house. And as he retells the story, he would say that he was scared to death that night, as you would be too, right? If you're 26, 
the threats are real, and you have a wife and a newborn at home. So he said he was, he was thinking about leaving. He stopped to pray, and as he prayed, a couple things happened. First, as he prayed, he really felt God say to him, hey, what you're doing is right. Fighting for justice is right. And the second thing he heard from God was, and I'm with you. I'm with you. You're not alone. You never will be alone. I promise to never leave you, to never forsake you. I am with you. And in the courage that those statements from God gave him, he decided not to leave. In fact, four days later, he was actually at his church leading a rally for the bus boycott when someone runs into the rally and shouts, Dr. King, your house is on fire. So he runs to his house to find that the front of the house has been, uh, is on fire and has been demolished from a bomb. His wife and his child were inside the house. Thankfully, uh, they weren't badly, severely injured. What happened next to me is what, is what I point to as his greatest act of leadership. Because uh, standing outside of, the, of his house, having checked on his wife and his daughter and make sure that they were okay, with the, with the rubble and the fire behind him and the crowds of African-American citizens who were gathering in front in his yard, and many of them, according to witnesses, were armed, armed with clubs and bats and knives and guns, and they are angry and had every right to be. And they, standing before them were also these white police cops who were trying to hold some kind of order, and the mob was getting more and more angry and larger and larger. And Dr. King stood up in front of them. And what he said blows me away. In fact, I'm just going to read it as Jathani tells it right here. He says, wrong page. It says, uh, when King arrived at the parsonage, King found, at, uh, found it on fire with the front of the home destroyed. So King signaled the crowd to calm down. He reminded those who had come to do battle that he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. And then to the amazement of both the angry black citizens and the frightened white police officers, King calmly told the mob, I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let, let them know that you love them. See, what we are doing is right and what we are doing is just and God is with us. One witness there said there were tears on many faces. The weapons were put down and the crowd began singing Amazing Grace. King's wife later said, This could well have been the darkest night in Montgomery's history, but the Spirit of God was in our hearts. The sight of Reverend King standing on the rubble of his firebombed home and calling the black citizens of Montgomery to love those responsible changed the course of the civil rights movement. He had preached about love, forgiveness, and nonviolence before, said one historian, but now seeing the idea in action, millions were touched, if not converted. Man, is that not awesome? Like, that is leadership. Here's what I know about leadership. That leaders are incredibly important whenever a group of people are facing trying, difficult circumstances. And yet they're still trying to accomplish something hugely significant. 
The leaders are so important when a group of people are facing trying circumstances, and yet the group is still trying to accomplish something hugely significant. And thank God for Martin Luther King Jr., right? See, that's always emotional for me when I think about Camp and Enoch. And it's like, I see his dream played out in my family. And I think, man, praise God for him. But here's what's true for me and true for us as a church, is that the church itself, and Midtown Church specifically, is this morning we're talking about, we fit those conditions of what need, why we need great leaders. See, the church always has been a, 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 a group of people that finds herself in trying circumstances, that's still trying to do something hugely significant. And then when Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, he starts addressing the leaders because he knows that these people, the churches that he's writing to, they're scattered across Asia Minor. And he's been calling them to live in such a way that's going to be incredibly difficult, but partnering with God and God working through them could accomplish something hugely significant. And yet they're being persecuted and it's hostile. And so he says to the leaders, we need you leaders to lead the group of people through trying circumstances because you're trying to do something hugely significant. And guys, what the circumstances were for these, this church or these churches when, who were the original audience of 1 Peter, their, their difficulties were much harder than ours. But that isn't to say that ours are not hard. We, uh, to do what we're called to do, what, what we've been studying in 1 Peter, to live as a, 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 you know, a, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to live as aliens and sojourners in the world, to give people a picture of what God is like and what his kingdom will be like so that when they see it and are drawn to know Christ so that on Christ's day of visitation, they're actually ready to receive Christ because they put their faith in Christ to, to live in a life that demands a gospel explanation and to be bold enough to give that gospel explanation even when it means our rejection. To do this stuff, we got it. We risk and we may suffer and it can be hard. And it means reprioritizing our schedules and our calendars to spend time with people that aren't just always comfortable for us to spend time with and, and to do all of that stuff. And so it can be hard. And yet here's what we're called to do. We're called to engage the world for Christ. Because people matter to God. And because uh, God deserves their worship. And so we try to present the gospel and how we live and what we say so people will be drawn to him, but that's hard. Peter knows that, so he says, okay, let me write to the, let me write to the elders. And let, me, let me call them on how do they should relate to the church. And then he says something here about how the church should relate to the elders. And then he says something about how the whole church should relate to one another. So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let me read this for us. 1 Peter 5. Verses 1 through 5 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. couple things I want to point out here. First, starting with the point of how the elders should relate to the church. Now, before I get into it, just want to highlight the importance of elders. When Peter writes this, notice he addresses elders assuming or, or knowing that every church that he's writing to has elders. Again, remember at the beginning of chapter 1, when he says who this letter is for, he names off five cities in Asia Minor that most most commentaries say that probably represents dozens and dozens and dozens of small churches throughout the region. And so he writes still to the elders, thinking that all of those churches would have elders. And he writes as a fellow elder, that Peter in his humility here doesn't use the title apostle, which kind of is a trump card, like I was with Jesus, and that's, hey, good for you. But uh, he, he uses a more humble term here, uh, elder, putting himself on the level of the elders he's talking to, saying, okay, what, peer to peer, what you do is important. Therefore, we need you to do it the right way. Here's what you need to do, and here, do it for the right reasons. And so what does he say elders do? Well, there's three things that he lists off. Let me just hit them real quickly. The first is that elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd, he uses this metaphor of, of shepherd and sheep or shepherd and flock to talk about elder and the church uh, throughout the, these uh, verses. And when you think about a shepherd, what's a shepherd do, right? Shepherd cares for, serves, protects, leads, shears the sheep. I don't think the metaphor goes that far. Stretch it a little bit. But just the protecting and looking out for and caring for, yeah, that's, that's the idea, Elders shepherd, shepherd their flock. Second thing he says, uh, that they are to exercise oversight, exercising oversight. First Timothy chapter 3, Paul, when addressing elders, actually just uses the word overseer to, as, as a title for elders. And so here, Peter's saying, okay, this is what elders do. You exercise oversight. Paul would say you are an overseer. So what's an overseer do? Well, among other things, it's, it's where you're, you're, you know, looking out for, and working for the good of the whole entire flock. It sees the big picture, caring for people and leading them where they ought to be going. And then the third thing that he says elders ought to do is that they are to be examples to the flock. Being examples to the flock. Verse 2 said, shepherding the flock that's amongst you, meaning that elders aren't to be separated from the church. That the truth is that elders, elders are, uh, and if you go with the metaphor of sheep, um, Elders are also sheep. Elders are not, uh, you know, just shepherds. We, all elders and all people in the church are sheep underneath the rule and authority of the chief shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. And so elders are to be sheep as well amongst the church, needing the things that the church can do for them just like the church needs them. That, uh, I, like, I'm in a huddle. I've got guys I meet with that hold me accountable, and I need that, and they need that. But... Here you say that they, the shepherds are to be, or the elders are to be amongst the sheep, and so they're not removed from the sheep, and they're to be examples to the sheep, to the flock, to the church. And how they live, what they say, it's not just an upfront Sunday morning kind of thing. It's who they are in all of life. That's the responsibility of elders. 
All right? So that's what they're called to do. And Peter's saying, man, it's important that you do that. But then he also makes it clear that it's not just that you do it, but that you do it for the right reasons. Right? And so that's what he really expands on here. And the very first thing he says is that you, you know, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now, here's an interesting question to ask. It's, it seems like Peter is alluding to the idea that there are elders that are eldering, but they don't want to be eldering. <laughs> They're doing it out of compulsion. Like, why would, why would there be elders that are eldering who don't want to be eldering? Why would he need to say this? Do this, but not out of compulsion. Well, he, let me just, you know, give some thought to it this week and think with uh, my experience of being an elder, but I also think for Peter, when he's writing to these guys as an elder, what, he's th- what he knows is that eldering's hard. See, he, he knows that there are outward circumstances that make eldering hard. Like I think about when Peter's writing to this original audience, he knows that there's suffering coming, fiery trials that are among them that he talked about in chapter 4. That He knows that elders who are leading the church are going to be the ones that are most prominent and therefore very uh, open, vulnerable to the suffering and hostility that was taking place in that day and age. And so the outward circumstances could cause the elders to say, okay, I need to do this, but I don't want to do this. See, I don't want to do this because people might take my home. They might throw me in jail, or later on, they might kill me. That could be one reason why they don't want to do it. The second reason why uh, eldering can be hard is inward circumstances. Because if elders are really doing their job shepherding the sheep that's among them, then elders uh, carry uh, the burden of a, of a, a lot of, uh, come alongside of people, carry, help carry their burdens for a lot of people. And Back in that day, it might have been people getting fired for their jobs uh, because they were Christians. Or it could be other things like marital tensions and stuff like that that they dealt with. For us, it's, it can be marital strife, it's losing jobs, it's miscarriages, it's, un, it's sudden deaths, it's uh, infighting, it's people making harmful decisions that are leading to their destruction. You wish you just could grab them on the shoulders and wake them up and get them to stop and they won't stop and that tears you up inside. It's hard. But you feel like, oh, I'm supposed to do this. And so you stay with it. But you're doing it out of compulsion. You just don't do that. Then the third thing that makes eldering hard is, is that uh, it's what you're trying to accomplish together. That you're saying, okay, God's called us, set us apart, and we're, we're sent out by God to join him in what he's doing in the world. So other people could get to di- see the gospel demonstrated in front of them and declared to them that they may come to know Jesus. And to live that way personally is challenging. To lead others to live that way is also challenging, but oh, so important and yet hard. And so you say, okay, in light of the vision, in light of our mission, man, my job as an elder could be hard. And yet you feel like, oh, i got to do it. And you find yourself doing it out of compulsion. Peter writes and says, hey, don't do it out of compulsion. Don't do it. In fact, he'll go on to say, do it eagerly, which is a wild statement. Like, you should be volunteering for this and wanting to do this and, and saying, like, this is, this is where I, what I'd rather do than anything else. And, guys, let me just tell you, the elders of Midtown Church, they feel that way. And they love being 
your elders. And every one of them volunteered for the job. <laughs> and they serve faithfully. And I just want you to know, like, as uh, you know, someone who gets to see them serve on a weekly basis, like, we're blessed as a church with the elders that God has given us. So those are the reasons why they might do it out of compulsion, because it's hard. But the question still is, is like, why exactly still do it? Like, what's keeping them from letting go of let, if they don't want to do it any longer? What's keeping them from just walking away from eldering? And Peter puts his finger on two of the things here in this passage that could be these motivations that keep you doing something that you don't want to be doing. And he calls them out and says, don't let these things be the things that motivate you. Namely, uh, what he says is shameful gain and domineering over those in your charge. Like in verse, uh, end of verse 2. So not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples. Shameful gain, just real quickly, talks about serving as a way to get rich. All right? And he says, don't, don't be, you know, maybe you'll stay in this job if you don't want to do it any longer because you're getting a good paycheck. Don't let that be the thing that's motivating you to elder. This should let you all know, for our church, none of our elders get paid except for me. It's because I'm greedy. And so, no, just kidding. No, I get paid because I have the extra re, uh, responsibility of being a primary teacher and leading our staff, amongst other things. But none of our other elders uh, get paid. They volunteer. And that's, a, again, I, I, such a sign of health for our elder board. Second thing is that uh, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, which implies that the elder is driven to stay in that position by their love of power. That they are doing it because they, they got an ego trip. They love the title. They love the idea that they could tell people to do, even though that's not what, you know, elders are there to serve and not to get people to serve them following the model of Christ. But an elder can let this go to your head. He says, Peter says, don't let that happen. That's not what you're to be about. You're to serve eagerly. And then he gives the motivation in this passage for why elders should serve willingly and eagerly. It's found in verse 4. Here's what he says. He says, um, find it. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That it's an eternal perspective, knowing that one day Christ is going to return. And one day you're going to stand, as elders, are going to stand before Christ and receive a reward, a crown from him for his faithful service if you serve faithfully. And that the elders are told throughout Scripture that we're going to be held accountable. We're going to have to give an account for how we oversaw the church. And if we serve faithfully, then God will give this reward. And I don't know what this day, I don't know what this is going to look like. I know that the word crown here is used oftentimes to speak of an athletic crown that was given as, as a, like a medal, but on your head. <laughs> or a metal crown, golden crown, that was given to someone who's really valiant in battle. And it was a public display. And I, I just dream, I just hope personally, that what this looks like one day is that, that Jesus, when we're with him in eternity, one day he calls everybody over from different local churches. And he calls up faithful elders. And he puts the crown on their head in front of all of us that we could cheer wildly as we have a greater understanding of how the elders that were among us cared for our souls and pointed us towards Christ. And like I think about that day and what it would be like to be in the crowd when Pete Craycroft gets called up. Pete Craycroft serves faithfully on the elder board at Hill Country Austin and at Hill Country UT and now with Midtown Church. And I think about all these churches grabbing around and seeing Jesus call Pete up and we just 
oh man, that's going to be so special. It's that thought that's there to motivate us elders to care for, shepherd, exercise our oversight, and to be godly examples for the church. That that's how we are to relate to the church. How's the church to relate to elders? He gets into that in, in verse 5. And he says is this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. Now, this is a helpful word for us because we are a young church. And a lot of people that might fit under the description of you who are young. He says to him specifically, here's the call. Be subject or, or submit to the elders. Now, I know that's not a, a, a word that we like a lot, but that's the call from God through Peter to the church. Be submission, submitted to, what's the word? Submit to the, the elders. Submissive, there we go. Wow. Emotional morning already. I'm just kind of, the, um, and those that are young, let me just say this. This is a good word for y'all. Because when, when, you're in, when you're a college student, or when you're a recent grad, you think, okay, you know, I, I, I got a lot of other stuff going on, and I'm kind of a part of this church, but I'm not really, like I'm not one of the adults that's in the church, and therefore there's some kind of gray area that you don't fully, or you're not fully a part. Like, God knows nothing of that when it comes to the church. And you're a part of us, and you're an important part of Midtown Church. And as a result, when we as elders, we think about what can we do to help like shepherd and care for Midtown, we don't think just about the adults. We're thinking about all of us. We care for you and we pray for you and we want you to know that. And we want to invite you to really lean all the way in to our church. And see, this is your church just as much as it is my church. It's also helpful to know that the statement here uh, to those who are young to be sub, uh, uh, subject to the elders it doesn't only apply to the, to the young. So if you're young here, you'll be like, ah, uh, why do I get signaled out? This is actually other scriptures that talk to everybody in the church. In fact, let me just read one. Hebrews 13, 7 says this, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right, so statement is to for everybody to obey your leaders. Now, what does that actually look like? Because I know when it comes to submission to uh, uh, some kind of authority, like our culture, we just push about against that, right? Like we we want to think as individuals. We think I know what's best for me, and I would never like if it doesn't look if it doesn't line up with me, then I don't have to do it. I only go along with what people say if I see how it fits and benefits me. Like that's so our culture, and that's what. Peter, like what he says here, rubs against that and should push against that. So we would think, okay, practically then, what does this actually look like? And let me just give you a couple examples. As an elder board, one thing that we would say that we're asking the whole church to participate in is our church goal this year. So in the back, we got these banners. We say, okay, we really feel like what God's calling Midtown Church to grow in this year is that we would learn to love being with God. And that with God, we'd love who we're with. And so one of the things that the elders have prayed a lot about and put before y'all is to say, this year, would you please give your attention to cultivating a relationship with God that's really like more than just Sunday morning, more than even just whenever you open up the Bible, spend time with him, but that it's a constant communion with God. Where you're always aware of his presence and always communing with him because he's always with you and he created you to be with you and he died in your place so that you could be with him. 
And like, he's the best. So that's what the message is from the elder board. And we said, like, we would love it if you lean in personally and say, let me, let me grow in my love for being with God. So on a church goal side, that's an example. Let me give you another one on church method side. We'd say that one of the things we as an elder board ask everybody in our church to consider doing is to join an MC or a Hill Country on Campus group. So you have people in your church that know you, that you're connected with in your life, who know you well and you know them well, and you can serve them and really be an intimate family with. And we know that God uses community to help people grow. So we as a church, we want you to value getting connected. And then the third example of something that we've put before our church as an elder board is, is our church vision. We say that we feel that God has given Midtown Church the responsibility to join him, to partner with him, to see the day when every man, woman, and child in Austin has heard the gospel from someone who loves them. And what we would ask is everybody in our church to lean into that to own that individually as a part of Midtown Church to say, okay, the elders are saying, like, God is leading us to do this. I'm going to actually look at the people in my life and start praying for them and find ways to serve them and even share with them the greatest news ever. That's some examples here of what it would look like to be subject to your elders in our church. Learn to love being with God. Connect with other believers. And get the gospel to our city. You notice that it doesn't mean, uh, like, uh, come and wash my car, right? Or, you know, I'm going to make you babysit my kids, though they're awesome and you should want to do that. But, uh, like, it's not, that's, man, that's the selfish, that's the domineering over. If you see that from our elder board, you've got to call that out. But it's this stuff, when we look to shepherd the church and oversee the church, that we would ask that you would lean into this. Join us. The last thing I'll say here is that how the church is to relate to one another. And that's what he gets into in verse 5, he, the rest of verse 5. He says this. Uh, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a helpful word because uh, when talking about leadership and, and, and like, uh, or following grasp on a humility so helpful as a leader we need to be called to be humble to not let leadership go to our heads but instead to see leadership as a position to serve others so we would act in humility as a church we need to hear the call to to be humble that we would say okay i'm going to put my own interests uh, below the interests of everyone else and so i'm going to be led by the elders and willingly follow them in humility and if we love each other in that way, if we clothe each other in humility, then I think God can use our church as he's used the church throughout, the, throughout time, even in trying circumstances, to accomplish something hugely significant for his name and for the good of people. Last question to ask here is, okay, what, what would really lead us to do that? What would motivate us to live in this way, to clothe us in humility, to serve eagerly? What would, what would lead us to trust Jesus enough to say yes to living in this way? And here's the answer. This chief shepherd, this chief shepherd that he refers to in verse 4, he's the good shepherd. And our chief shepherd is Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. The good shepherd who says in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd that I care for my sheep, that I lay down my life for the sheep. 
He goes on to say that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And guys, when we recognize that it's Jesus who's ultimate shepherding this church, he's the ultimate chief shepherd of this church, and we see what he's like, that he's the good shepherd, that we would listen to him and we would obey what he said because we know that he loves us. And we know that he died for us, and we know that he did it willingly, voluntarily. No one took his life from him. That Jesus led sacrificially, eagerly, willingly. And when you see Jesus' sacrificial, willing service of us, it moves us to want to serve him sacrificially and yet still willingly. And when we see how Jesus died for us, it moves us to this point of humility. That all of us are on level playing field. All of us, elders, rest of the church, anyone, they're all in a place where we all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and desperately needed Jesus' death on our behalf to make us to where we could be reconciled to God. And when we recognize that, it leads us to humility. And we say, okay, I'm nobody apart from Christ. And that we would treat each other that way. And then the third thing, that we would trust Jesus enough to do what he says here because we know he's trustworthy for he is the good shepherd and he laid down his life for his sheep. If he loves us that much, then we know that what he points us to do is the right thing and we can say yes to it. And we're going to end this morning with a chance to take communion as a way to remember that our good shepherd was also the lamb that was slain. And that the good shepherd became the sheep and was slain in our behalf, and his body was broken and his blood was spilled, that we could become a family of God, and that we could join God in what he's doing in this world, partnering with him to get the good news out. And so I want to invite you during this time of worship to come and take the bread and take the cup and remember Christ's death on your behalf. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for how you love us. Or demonstrated so clearly in sending your son to die on our place. Lord, you, Jesus, are the good shepherd. And we are so thankful that you are because we recognize that you are our chief shepherd. And Lord, we can trust you and we can go according to what you say because we know we can trust you. And may, God, your eager service on our behalf lead us to serve you eagerly. And God, may, or may what you've done for us humble us to the ground and yet give us this incredible confidence of your love because you willingly died. And we remember that now, and we pray that you'd help us be a, a church that really reflects your love for one another, your humility, and God, that you would use us to accomplish something very significant for your name within this city. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.